Um, Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring the light to things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from from God. The grass withers and flowers fade. Well, good morning. I'm Brian. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I'll be giving the, uh, the second sermon uh, today. That was so good. <laughs> Felt so ministered to already. Um, if you're just joining us, we just started a new sermon series in 1 Corinthians, and we've entitled the series Up and to the Right, uh, because a graph that reads up and to the right indicates growth, maturing, productivity, and that's all the things that we want for our church as we continue on. Uh, Growth and maturation for the Corinthian church, however, came in the form of Paul addressing some serious infestations of certain problems that were stunting its growth and productivity. Um, Imagine bed bugs with me, just horrible little creatures that live in your bed. Uh, Maybe you're feeling the itch right now. I'm feeling the tinglys in my leg a little bit um, as I think about it. But what do you do with bed bugs? I mean, I don't know, whatever you need to to get rid of them. I mean, two things that come to mind off the bat is a new lease and a bonfire. But seriously, whatever you need to do to just expel the problem or to cut the thing out of your life um, is what you need to do. Well, in the Corinthian church, there were these serious problems, and and Paul is calling the church to deep self-reflection about what God designed for the church to be and to do. Now today, from chapter 4, the passage for our study and focus today, the problem that Paul is wanting to address with the Corinthians was actually a problem that he's been addressing all along. That is division in the church. Now what was the cause of these divisions? Well, as we've been saying, the Corinthian church was a very spiritually endowed church situated in a cosmopolitan city that boasted the best of commerce, politics, education, philosophy, and the Corinthians were coming from an expert culture of high sophistication, and so they wanted that in the church, but they also wanted that in their church leaders. Now, by the time that Paul writes these letters to the Corinthian church, the church had come into contact with at least a few key leaders of the day, Apollo, Cephas, he mentions them, and of course, Paul himself, and these were all men who had helped to launch and grow the church. But herein lies the peculiar bedbug that Paul is wanting to address in this chapter. The church wasn't that impressed with Paul. Apparently, Paul lacked social presence. Apparently, he wasn't very good with his words. And since his conversion, Paul had been publicly insulted, persecuted, stoned, stripped, and beaten, imprisoned. It was hardly the career record you want in a church leader. And so the church started to divide and to side with church leaders who they thought had the more desirable leadership traits, 
spiritual charisma, personality and presence, and eloquence of speech, and even began to elevate one minister over and against the others. And so Paul sees the factionalism happening in the church, and he wants to offer an alternative way, a gospel-centered way, that will bring unity and love back to the church. In this chapter, Paul's primary question is going to be then, how should the church regard its pastors? How should the church see the pastors? And he's going to give a description of how they should be regarded, what their primary responsibility is, how they should carry out those tasks, and then what the church can do to support the pastors so that they can fulfill those tasks. So we'll have a description how they should be regarded, what their role is, how they should do it, and how the church can support us to do that work. Let's first think about the description of how ministers should be regarded. When you see us up here in this nice suit and all primmed and, and, and cut, um, what, how do you regard us? Um, this past week, I... Uh, was reading this article from Forbes, and they were interviewing Kathy Antarasian, who's a senior partner at Spencer Stewart. It's a consultancy firm in the city here. Now, she's also a practice leader of CEO Succession in North America, meaning that she helps transition uh, big chief execs at these really top big firms, and she's guided over 50 of these transitions over the past few years. And they asked her, uh, what are the five traits that you look for in CEOs? And I have the quote for you there. You can look on the first page and follow along. Uh, the interview says, surprise. Boards are pretty much always looking for the same five qualities in their CEO candidates. And so I learned in my recent conversation with Kathy Antarasian, uh, the senior partner from this firm, uh, she's got the street cred to point out the pattern. Trust me, she says, uh, with a quiet assurance, it's a fundamental and enduring list. And here's the five. She says, is this leader a good strategist? Is this leader a good operator? Can this leader have impact in the culture? Can this leader build followership? Does this leader show stretch potential? You know, in the past, I've been part of pastor search committees and have, and have been part of the interviewing process to bring on board pastors of churches. And, you know, the, the, the practice is pretty standard. You have them send in a resume. There are a few rounds of interviewing, uh, meeting certain members of the church so that the church can get a feel for the kind of person that he is. And then, you know, if we would like, uh, we invite him up to the pulpit to preach a couple of times and we sort of kind of get a gauge for what he can do. But the bottom line is, when we're trying to bring on someone onto staff, something that I've noticed again and again is the bottom line is, is what we want to know is if we bring this person on, how will the church change for the better? How will the church uh, become more healthy? How will it expand? How is the culture going to change for the better? Well, Paul, actually, in response to this kind of thinking in the Corinthian church, uh, offers us actually two descriptions of how the church is supposed to regard their leaders, their pastors. And the two descriptions are these. The first is servant, and the second is steward. Servant and steward. Let's look at that first description, the servant. Uh, 
Uh, it says in the scriptures, this is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries of God. Servant is that Greek word huperetis, uh, huperitas, um, and it literally translates under rower. Not a rower, but an under rower. And this word is in reference to the ancient galley ships, these merchant ships with, with, that had these tiers of rowers. And this, these huperitases were these under rowers. So they weren't on that first tier or not even on the second tier, but they were on the bottom tier, on the very bottom part of the ship. Um, and of course, that lowest tier was dark. It was uncomfortable. It was probably the dampest, the worst condition anywhere on the boat. Uh, their labor was strenuous because they were probably rowing against the most quantity of water because they were at the bottom. It was a thankless labor. There's no glamour, no recognition, and these galley slaves were actually quite dispensable. No high status at all attached to this position. Uh, very different from what the Corinthian church was doing with their leaders. They were elevating their church leaders to very high statuses, even acknowledging some apostles and some leaders to be the so-called super apostles, whatever that means. But Paul says no. Ministers of the gospel, leaders, pastors of the church, are meant to be servants first and foremost. They're not to be regarded as people in positions of greatness and exalted positions, but instead should be marked by a low and humble position. That's the first picture that Paul gives. The second is that of a steward, and by description, we get the sense that the steward would have been sort of like an estate manager or a superintendent. You see, uh, landowners, when they would go on business or on some pilgrimage or to visit family or whatever they were up to, they would set up before they went estate managers to look after the master's home. The steward was therefore put in charge of the finances of the master to even do the bidding of the master on his behest. Uh, resource allocation, staff delegation, including the children, uh, did the bidding of the master in his place. But here's the key. The key is that it was only for the time that the master was away that this authority was vested. Meaning that this was a provisional authority vested to the estate manager only for a while the master was gone. But guess what happens when the master comes back? That authority is no more because it was a provisional authority. That means that when Jesus comes back, church, I will no longer be your pastor. Aaron, Gene, Dave, Jay, we will no longer be your pastors because you'll have the shepherd himself. So that means probably in heaven, um, oh, I don't know, you guys may perhaps still be professionals of glory, whatever that's going to look like. It's going to be awesome. Uh, but for us, I don't know. I, I, I'm out of a job. And so, you know, I may, I may take up, I don't know, uh, a barista and cat, you know, latte art and serve you guys coffee of glory or something. Uh, we're first and foremost meant to be servants, and secondly, we're meant to be stewards. And so our conclusion is this, we are here to serve you through and through because we're servants. But on the same token, uh, you are not our masters. 
We're here to serve you through and through, but you are not our masters, meaning we are not employees for hire at the church. It's inappropriate to call pastors employees or he was just hired for this or for that because we exist to serve you, but we are duly appointed by the master himself to do his bidding in his stead. And so think of us as servants and think of us as stewards, uh, duly appointed to do the master's work. And so what exactly is our primary responsibility and how should we do it? Well, it says in the scriptures, if you look with me again, verse 1, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Meaning that our primary responsibility as stewards is to steward whatever this thing, mysteries of God, is all about. We'll talk about that. And how should we do it? We're supposed to do it faithfully. Let's talk about that now. Uh, what are the mysteries of God? Sounds a little bit cultish, sounds um, a little bit um, mystical. Uh, well, the mysteries of God are just those things that are hidden and invisible, belonging to God and only Him. Only He has it. We don't know about it. Um, you see, from long ago, God's plan of redemption was not made clear. Uh, people weren't quite sure how God's plan would exactly play out. And it was told only in shadows, uh, only dimly seen in symbols or certain institutions or events or figures, fragments. Even the prophets saw only in part, not knowing exactly how God's plan of redemption would play out. But finally, finally, in the fullness of time, a light has penetrated the darkness, revealing what was once hidden and it was like God was silent for all these ages about his full plan for redemption. And then at the appointed hour, he speaks. And at that point, people maybe expected that it would be a voice from heaven or at least fire and brimstone or something. What they didn't expect, what they expected was a voice from heaven. What they didn't expect was a man from heaven. You know, the, the prophets only had this thing called a partial revelation. They only knew in part, in fragments, uh, what God's redemption would be like. But in the fullness of time, in the appointed hour, what we were given was the full revelation of God. Uh, Paul elsewhere, Colossians 1.26 says, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. And so what was that mystery? The word of God that is now fully known, fully displayed. Well, it's the word of God made flesh. God incarnate, the son of God, Jesus Christ himself, the full revelation of God's word. He is, when we see Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, meaning that now the invisible has become visible, in whom all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, we're told in the scriptures. The word who was in the beginning, the word that was with God, the word who was God. In Jesus, what you see is the invisible and the hidden, 
becoming visible and revealed so that when you see the face of Jesus, what you are seeing is the full revelation of God, the very face of God himself. This is the mystery that is now revealed to us, and that is the message, the mystery revealed in Jesus Christ that we as your pastors are entrusted to steward well. It's like this. Imagine a seed, and when you look at the seed, you have no idea what kind of seed it is until you bury it, and that seed dies. And in due time, from that seed, that seed gives its life, and from it comes new life. Well, this is the story of the mystery of Christ revealed. Jesus said himself, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. From his death comes life, and this is the mystery revealed, that in the death of Jesus the Messiah, that we have new life. Therefore, the pulpit here shall not be used will not be used for personal opinions or agendas, but should be faithful to testifying to the mysteries of God, which has now in Christ been fully revealed. In other words, our preaching should always proclaim and declare and explain something meaningful about Christ every single time. I know I've heard it before where people say, oh my gosh, like he's about to get to the Jesus point. Well, yeah, that's... That's our job, to steward that mystery of Christ revealed. And so how are we supposed to do the solemn responsibility? It just follows that we do this faithfully then, that we are true to the text as it points to Christ already. We just bring that out. Uh, we're not the cooks. We're just pizza delivery guys, okay? It's already been cooked. We just deliver the thing. Eloquently, fine. Innovatively and creatively, okay. With humor, awesome. In 25 minutes, even better. <laughs> but most of all, in a word, faithfully. Faithfully. And that's why Paul commends men like Timothy in the scriptures. And Timothy, by the way, he was physically weak. Okay? He was young. Um, and he was timid. Think timid Timothy. He, he actually, at one point later on in this letter, says, uh, greet Timothy well um, and, and treat him well, that peace may be with him, because he was a little bit scared, evidently, to go to the Corinthian church. Uh, but how does Paul commend Timothy? He says this, that is why I send to you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. You know, it wasn't about his ability on stage or his social presence or even the experience of it, but it was his faithfulness to the deposit entrusted to him, which is the word of God. He says this also of Tychicus and Epaphras. He says, Tychicus will tell you, he was another church leader of the day, and he says, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant. He says this of, of, of Epaphras, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your 
behalf. Take a look at that first page on your bulletin. There's a quote from Kevin DeYoung. We like Kevin DeYoung. He says this, there are men who want to love a church, lead their fellow elders and preach solid sermons, and yet they feel like they don't have the entrepreneurial gifts or visionary personality to cut it in today's church. They may still be called to pastoral ministry. Conversely, there are men entering the pastorate because they have great gifts for making things happen and great passion for changing their communities, but they should not be pastors because they cannot teach and have little patience for loving an actual congregation. We are tasked then to be servants and stewards of the mysteries of God and to do it faithfully. But the truth is, we're mere mortals, and we need help. And we need your support and your encouragement in um, many ways, um, a few specific ways that Paul outlines now. If you go to the middle of the page, uh, the bulletin for the passage, and read along with me verses 3 to 5, Paul says this. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart then each one will receive his commendation from God. I want to go into just a few ways that the church can now support the pastors um, in this duly appointed task. Uh, The first is kind of an extended application, and then I'll just kind of fire off a few smaller ones, and then I'll close here. Uh, Paul says, but with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you. He basically says, I don't care about your criticism, criticisms of me. And that's actually the, the kind of attitude that you need to help us foster. And at first it sounds a little bit arrogant and maybe even a little bit defensive, like, oh, I don't care what you think of me and what you say of me. Um, but um, actually, it's, it's actually one of the most loving things that Paul says. Later on in the chapter, he kind of appeals to them Um, as a father and says, you have many guides, but you don't have fathers. And for me, I can kind of connect on this point, and and I'll show us why having this attitude of not caring about your criticisms and your judgments is actually a good thing for us, and it actually enables us to love you properly. And this is how it works. I'm a dad. I have a two-year-old. And the, 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 what is it? The, uh, the, The terrible twos. It's so real. It's so real, right? Um, But honestly, I don't care that she's going to be fussy and whine that she wants goldfish before dinner. I don't care. I'm not going to let her have it. See, it's only when a parent is able to filter all the whining and the crying and the tears and, and 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 the criticism through the lens of love that I can actually properly begin to function as a dad. And same is true as pastors. You know, we're told in the scriptures that we're meant to be shepherds, flock, 
uh, shepherds over flocks, to oversee your souls. But if every time you said something and we were just super sensitive to it and couldn't go about our day because of it and we're distracted by it, we couldn't properly do the job of loving you. See, if I was more concerned about saying things you wanted to hear than saying things that you needed to hear, then it would serve me better to be more a politician than a pastor. Um, I could just partisan lobby for your support. I could just tell you the things that you want to hear. And I could do that so easily in so many different ways too. Just invite you over to my home, cook you dinner, and just show off the cuteness of my daughter to try and win brownie points or something. It would be so easy to do that. But that's really not our job. That's not our tasked job. Our job is to be pastors and to be dispensers of God's truth without hesitation and reservation. So that means that when you come over, you know, some of us don't, some of you don't want to come over because we're going to, I don't know, uh, give you the truth, right? But that's why you should come over, okay? Because we're going to give you the truth of God, hopefully without reservation and hesitation. Uh, that means that also, if there are things that are going on in your life that are difficult and hard, maybe sinful, uh, maybe you think that that's a reason uh, to maybe avoid the pastors and avoid eye contact with us when you come in here because uh, you're afraid we're going to say hi and God forbid they strike a conversation with me or something. But no, that, that's why you should. Because you know, if we're doing our job properly before the Lord, we're going to be speaking God's truth and only his truth, not with agenda or bias. That was the extended one. Um, we're servants, stewards, uh, without self-importance or self-regard, even in the face of criticism. And so we need uh, definitely a lot of help in this. And so just a few for our consideration as we close here. Um, I want to read 1 Timothy 5.17 as a very important cross-reference for us as we think about pastors and what their job is and what the right kind of relationship is supposed to be uh, between the church and the pastorate. First uh, Timothy 5.17 says, Let the elders of the church who rule be worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Double honor. What does that mean? Notice it doesn't say double pay. Um, it, it says double the honor, meaning double the support. Uh, double the consideration, double the encouragement, because as galley slaves, as under rowers, sometimes it's uh, thankless. There are things that we do for you because we love you that you will never see. Um, and that's why Paul commands, God commands, um, that you give double the portion of honor to those who especially labor in preaching and teaching and do it well. And one of the ways that that could spell out into application for us is, um, if I may just speak for them on their behalf, it's our wives. It's our wives. You know, there are so many times where in, 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 in getting ready for sermon, I have to prep. I have to re we actually read a lot, and we should if we're going to be delivering good sermons. Um, but what that usually means is when I get the spark of inspiration and to get back into the books, um, Jeannie lets me. But what that means is that she's left to fend for, her, for, for herself with Evelyn in the evening. And I imagine that it would be uh, very similar 
um, if not more the case for Aaron and for Gene and the other pastors on the staff. And so what that could physically look like is in all the ways that we really already feel so supported. Um, it, it looks like the babysitting stuff. Um, some of our members started a babysitting uh, channel for us on Slack last year, and uh, we've been using it, and we've been super grateful. That's, that's the kind of double honor that Paul is talking about, double the support, because we're galley slaves. Um, also, with this solemn responsibility of stewarding the master's estate until he returns. It also means pastoral development, budgets for books and for seminars that we can attend because the more that we are fed, the more that we can do the feeding. And so I'm very glad at this church that there seems to be a, a bottomless budget for books. And so far there hasn't been abuses. Um, I've been at previous churches where they have abused that and so they had to like set limits. But at our church it seems limitless. And so for, for the time being, thank you um, for that, um, for uh, that budget to read and to study and to reflect. And, and by the way, that, that is a considerable um, portion of our job in the week to week, to think and to reflect, to spend lots of time in prayer. Um, also, it means submission, submission to the pastor. Um, Hebrews thirteen seventeen says, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. That's why you should submit, because you know and trust that we're submitted to God and we have to answer to him. We don't have to answer to human standards because what is that compared to the high and holy standard of God under which we will be judged? Not everyone should be teachers then, is what James says in his book, because they'll be judged harshly. It's our task, it's our calling to rise to that. And so the last thing really is prayer. We really need your prayers. Um, prayers that the times that we spend in God's word, that it would be fruitful and that it would really edify us, that it would really speak to us. You know, the, 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 the most difficult task of sermon prepping, I have to say, is sitting under the word of God myself. Because in the process, I'm being stretched, I'm being molded, I'm being altered, I'm being cropped, I'm being cut. And that's the process of sermon prep. And so pray that every time we, the pastor, get into the word, that that pruning would happen for us. Pray for us like you love us. Pray for us because we're your brothers and because we're your shepherds. I'm entrusted to care over your soul. My final word um, is actually for uh, my bros on the pastoral staff, uh, my brothers in arms, um, partners in the, this gospel ministry. And the word actually comes from Ray Ortland, um, and he says that I hope that the church would see you as the great men that you are. But it's when you're faithful to the Lord and only then that you actually will be. Let's pray.